0: Oh, the shite that will get all the fans down. Can we not lock it? It's a fact. I'm not playing mind games, I'm talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladiccio, they'd probably say I was more of a tactical genius. I answer questions on anything. (laughs) Religious, (laughs) politics, uh,
1: health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look
0: at his face! Just look! you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you. Disgrace. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Yes, you're very welcome along to Team 33 and I call here with you up until about 10 o'clock this evening and I'm joined on the line by Will O'Callaghan this evening. Will, how are you getting
1: on? Yeah, good, Enda. I'm on the back of watching the first old firm this week. Played midweek under lights with some kind of stakes on it for a league title in over 10 years now. Hard to believe going back to 2011 and even probably harder to believe that Celtic hadn't beaten Rangers for a couple of years. There have been six fairly miserable old firms for them in recent times. But I don't know about you, as a Celtic supporter, it seemed to me that the hoops were pretty much back to their best. That Particularly the first 20 minutes. I know two of the goals came a bit closer to halftime. But that first 15-20 minutes is as well as I've seen Celtic play in a long, long time.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. The, so everyone knows at this stage that I'm a Celtic fan. I don't think that's a secret of any kind mm-hmm. at this point in time. But I think this Wednesday's game, the uh, the game between Celtic and Rangers, was the unveiling of the new Celtic to the world. Because I, I feel like people who don't watch Scottish football in general tune in for the the Celtic Rangers games, be that at the weekend, but the evening fixtures in the week in the weekdays, it really catches catches their imagination. People are are off work, they're finished, they have nothing else to do, so they'll stick on the only good football that's on at the minute. And I think a lot of people were very surprised by what they got.
1: Yeah, possibly. I mean, particularly because we've watched a few old firm games now in recent seasons. And for someone who just tunes in and watches Celtic and Rangers, maybe in Europe, and then watches the old firm clashes between them. And say you were just watching the derbies in recent years, you had empty stadiums for some of them, you have midday kickoffs for the best part, usually on a Sunday, where the fans don't get a chance to maybe get ready and then create a huge atmosphere before the fixture comes off. It felt on Wednesday night as if it was a big European game that was taking place. There was that type of atmosphere around Parkhead. It was buzzing before kickoff came around. And I think that actually energized the Celtic players before the game started. And McGregor said that in his interview after the game too. He was asked about you know getting back and making sure he wore the face mask and he was able to play. And he said, well, the one thing that really hit the Celtic players when they were coming out was just the noise of the fans because they had missed that in a lot of the games that they'd recently played against with Rangers. And I think that added to the energy in the first 15, 20 minutes. Celtic did such a good job. And I know Ange Posticoglu is very much an attacking manager and he likes to get the ball wide and then get crosses into the box. And you know high pressure... That's exactly the type of football. I don't know. Was it a case of everything clicking on a big occasion this time round that we saw one of the best performances under Ange Postacoglu? Because I watched a bit of Celtic on Saturday. And they weren't exactly knocking down the door to get the winner. And it's amazing how much changed. And even with the way that the complexion of that game was going into Wednesday with the two late goals on Saturday afternoon. And people may well have been more attuned to Scottish football on Saturday because the Premier League was on its winter break and Rangers were playing a bit earlier and they were on the TV. And Rangers throw away a position where they should have won to turn it into a draw. And Celtic, in injury time, get the three points, which brought it back down to, you know, being within touching distance of Rangers going into the game. The thing that surprised me a little bit about the match during the week as well, and it was how some of Rangers, players who've been so important for them over the last couple of seasons, had less than stellar performances. I'm thinking of Tavernier, who gave away the ball an awful lot during the game. I know some of that had to do with the way he was being pressed, and he did a difficult job going the other way with Jota going at him, who has a bag of tricks and loads of pace as well. And over on the other side... Celtic were able to press well on the left-hand side and Goldson was forced into some mistakes in the centre-half position. Didn't look comfortable on various different occasions. And, you know, truth be told, if some of the Celtic shots in the first half hadn't been pretty close to McGregor's saving area, in all likelihood, Celtic could have won by four or five goals and probably should have. It's one of those games, and Gally McCoy was right. He said 3-0 almost felt flattering on Rangers and they would have been happy to get out with the second half without conceding more.
0: Yeah, well, even some of the chances that Celtic had before the first goal that went in from Rio Vatate and even for the second one uh, Georges Giacomacchus playing up front for them I mean he had a couple of good chances as well from the six yard box that Alan McGregor was able to just about keep out but the, the the narrative going into this game is very interesting because if you take it back to the start of the season where Celtic were in such a state of flux the new manager came in not many people knew who they were and they best players had left. Christopher Iyer had gone to, uh, gone down to Brentford. Odson Edward went to Crystal Palace. Scott Brown left to go to Aberdeen, albeit Scott Brown was essentially finished at the top level anyway. But lost key players, lost a lot of players like Ryan Christie to Bournemouth, brought in new players, 14 new transfers in total. This new manager takes over. Celtic started really well in the season bar the Champions League qualifiers, which always comes at a bad time for Celtic, but... They started pretty poorly. Then the league started; they were unbelievable. I uh, think they won six 0 two weeks in a row, and people were like, "This is, where this is uh, Ange Postacoglu's team." Then, as the season progressed, there was a little bit of a, a downward turn in the in the form. But I think that was just down to injuries, down to you know the team finally betting in. The performance against Rangers on Wednesday was what Celtic have threatened to do now for a while. They've been waiting to click. They've been gradually picking up form, picking up wins. The likes of the, the game at the weekend where they, they won on injury time to make this a two-point gap But going into the, the, the derby. They've threatened to do this. They've got the momentum now. And I think that's what really came together for Celtic on Wednesday against Rangers. The momentum that they've been bringing into the game and they just brought every single thing that they could. And I, I it should be mentioned as well that Celtic, just about had Callum McGregor ready for this game. I know people would have saw him in his in his mask during the week. He wasn't going to play for this game. Dyson Mehta, who came off the bench for Celtic the night before had played for Japan against Saudi Arabia in the World Cup qualifiers, had flown home over 900 miles to sit on the bench. They were missing Tom Roderick, who's on international duty for Australia. And, you know, it was just it just was in a fantastic performance with all of that taken into account it was the the blue rangers out of the water in the first half they really
1: did i'd agree and look i'd go back to your original point about the amount of signings that were made i really questioned about whether those dozen or so players that came in in pretty scattered business just before the season started the nature of it they were trying to get bodies in before the champions league qualifier then after that you could see the nunch Coglu had clearly picked out and identified some targets that he wanted to get in and like look how well the shopping has gone at fairly modest prices from the j league i wonder whether more european teams and particularly say teams around scottish level or maybe in the championship or the lower premier league might now start to look at some of the technical players that are available in japan because that's what kyogo and itade have brought to the club and you mentioned the injuries like not to have kyogo at all and we'll have to wait and see how long it's going to be before he gets back. There seems to be very conflicting reports in the Scottish media over the last couple of weeks that it seemed he was close to coming back to training after the setback that he had on St Stephen's Day and then there were rumours about him potentially having to go home and have an operation Understandably, Ange Postacoglu has been keeping his cards pretty close to his chest on that recovery, but he comes back in. Again, that's another transformative player to come into the starting 11 for Celtic. And so many of these players were brought in at relative pittances when you consider 2.5 million, 3 million is such a small amount of money. Like, Can you imagine how much value you're getting there compared to if Celtic were trying to raid a team at the bottom end of the Premier League or, say, the upper championship to try and get a player in?
0: Yeah, well, that's the thing. A lot of the fanfare ahead of this game was Aaron Ramsey moving from Juventus to Rangers on loan. And understandably, you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend as if Aaron Ramsey wasn't a top-level Premier League player before he went to Juventus, but Aaron Ramsey has played very little football in the last two years. And if Rangers are paying 10% of his wages, he's still the highest-paid player at the club. So you're talking about an insane amount of money that they're forking out on this probable risk if you're taking into account how much football he's going to play, and then you look at Celtic's midfield last night, Rio Hotate, who was the star man again on his fourth appearance for Celtic, which is only like he's already one of Celtic's most key players. He cost 1.3 million, and then Matt O'Reilly, his partner, who is in his his third game for the club, came from MK Dons for 1.5 million, and he looks like a real steal at that price. And I I, I spoke to a couple of MK Dons fans about Matt O'Reilly, and they basically said, yeah, he's he's definitely not a League One player. He was a, a low-level, maybe mid-table to mid table Premier League player playing in the League One the last couple of years. I've and that's, that's, his that's the value
1: Fulham. of, yeah. And they they can't believe that he was allowed to go to the MK Dons at the time. But they really felt that they had a young player who had loads of potential, was going to be perfect if they were going at an assault to try and get back out of the championship to go into the Premier League, drops down to League One. And they're even more surprised now, well, maybe not surprised, but probably even more disappointed about the decision to allow him to leave when you see how well he played last evening. You know, he's playing at a good level now within the SPL. I think he would still be as good as Fulham has been this season would be an asset for them. So yeah, it's very and he, clever, he made clever the choice coach.
0: to leave Fulham as well himself. Hmm. He he like he he wanted first team football and he he chose to, you know, not renew his contract essentially with Fulham to leave he he trained in a park pitch for a while. M K Don threw him a bow and said, "Look, he can come down and train with us." And then they couldn't believe his, their luck that they were going to get him on a contract. And then he was one of their best players. So it, his story is brilliant. Even Joseph Juranovic, who was the star man, I thought I thought he was man of the match last night at right back. Um, he cost two million. You know, it it just shows you the value of shopping around. And you know, the Scottish market is obviously different. And you know, English teams can get a lot of value in the Scottish market, but it shows you the difference between shopping and markets that other clubs aren't necessarily in in comparison to the like of Premier League clubs who have to fork out 40, 50 million for, let's face it, a 15, maybe 10 million player these days.
1: Yeah, and like, when you just think about from right back last night, the amount of overlapping that he did that created chances for Celtic uh, from that side, it's no great surprise that the third goal came from Rangers defensively not being quite sure whether they should squeeze back across uh, once Celtic started to come down the left-hand side because so many attacks were coming down the right, and was just like an and for players who were fairly new connection over that side as well. You were looking at constant overlapping which caused Rangers so many problems and the pressing from the front was so impressive from Celtic last night as well as you say it's maybe taken a little bit of time for this to click or for it to come together but very good signs with what 14 games left in the season now that Celtic are starting to come to the fore Rangers recruitment to go back to your Aaron Ramsey point is intriguing to see because if Ramsey stays fit in all likelihood the Aaron Ramsey of three or four years ago is probably the best player in Scotland but yeah. staying fit is the whole issue and quite aside from maybe falling out of favour a little bit towards the end of his first season at Juventus, he has had constant injury worries, which meant that he's not played enough games for Wales or for Juventus, particularly over the last couple of years. So I think that has to be seen as a huge risk from Rangers. They might see it as calculated. If they get him fit and get him out onto the pitch, he could be a difference maker. But you can see what Rangers are going for now between signing him and signing Diallo. They're trying to make that push uh, to try and just get over the line. But it's been a pretty miserable last four or five days for Rangers because I think they would have been confident then with the injuries that Celtic had. And it seemed as if you know, Captain McGregor wasn't going to be around for the game, but you know, he was able to get his Zorro mask in time to be able to play that Celtic were going to be down a whole load of their key players. They go to Celtic park, they get a draw, they win at Ross County last weekend. And we're talking about Rangers being a few points ahead in the title race with another old firm game navigated. And it's a totally different picture, but Rangers are going to be playing catch up now for the rest of the season.
0: Yeah. Sw- sliding doors moment as well. If, if mm. Rangers win that game, the momentum that Celtic have been building just drops dead and, and, you know Rangers can push on for the league again but i guess uh before we move on to to other matters having watched this as a relative outsider i saw gavin cooney from the 42 saying that you know he doesn't watch much scottish football but after watching this he'll definitely be watching a bit more would 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 this have been a good advertisement as we like to say for league of ireland football would this have been a good advertisement for the game in scotland
1: I think it probably was it would have been a better advertisement if the game had been a little bit more competitive and say if Rangers weren't dead on their feet at half time and so the second half kind of petered out a little bit with the exception of the jack shot that comes off the crossbar really very little happened in the second half which I'd say would have pleased Celtic because Celtic would have been thinking right let's just get this finished we'll declare it 3-0 up we make sure we don't get any injuries we get to full time we go top of the table Uh, Rangers showed a little bit of fight in the second half their substitutions uh, seemed to improve things a little bit but yet did they really make Joe Hart have to do a whole lot with that? shot except with the exception of the shot that went off the crossbar but if you watch the way that Celtic played in the first half if you listen to the atmosphere of the game yes it is likely to hook someone in to watch again if they were watching some of the comedy defending and some of the football between Ross County and Rangers at the weekend they might have been as inclined to go and watch the SPL again Uh, I will admit that just the nature of my job I end up having to watch more matches than I probably plan to do Um, but yeah I really enjoyed it last night and the midweek I'm hoping that this now means that those who run Scottish football will consider another midweek premiership match between Celtic and Rangers because it just felt so special having that atmosphere and that is not being recreated when they're on at midday during the weekend. And I know there's policing concerns and I know there's supporter concerns and God, some of these last old firm games have been you know, talking about restrictions and talking about clubs not giving enough away tickets when there were restricted crowds and so on. But now that we are back to full crowds and that there's going to be people from both sides of the city going to Glasgow derbies, let's hope we can have midweek because it makes for such an enjoyable occasion to watch. Not just for Rod Stewart, who you saw got himself on the camera right at the end of the game. And uh, I didn't see yeah, anyone on Rod Cam during the game. I was actually really surprised I didn't see Rod yeah. Stewart. I was thinking, maybe he's not there. And then you see Rod Stewart signing autographs at the end of the game with uh, the people no, who are yeah, sitting he'll around he'll
0: You'll always see Rod at the games. Uh, The ticket allocation is an interesting one. Uh, Just the final point on this before Mm -hmm. we finish up. The midweek games and the evening games make total sense now because neither club are allowing other fans or the opposition fans at the game. So it started a couple of years ago. Celtic's allocation were were, uh, cut at at Ibrox. So Celtic in turn cut their allocation at, at Celtic Park and so on and so forth. It eventually has ended up being full home fans and in in both stadiums for these games. So I mean, the policing concerns aren't really that much of a concern anymore. So you know evening games in the in the Celtic Rangers matches makes total sense to me because you're getting more Can- eyes and more.
1: Can you foresee a time Endo, when they reversed the decision on this? Because as an outsider, it's felt very tit-for-tat. It's like, you blocked us for this fixture, so we're going to block you. And then it kind of, both clubs got a little bit entrenched in their position. Do you think there's any point that Rangers and Celtic sit down as clubs and say, right, let's try and reintroduce away supporters back into these fixtures again?
0: Yeah, I would say that people will say I'm, I'm, I'm coming from a place of uh, bias for with my Celtic hat on, but I... Can't see the Rangers board changing their mind. I think they're far more entrenched than the Celtic board. I I believe I I like to believe that the Celtic board would be willing to to change their mind if Rangers came to them and said, "Look, we'll we'll sort this out." But there was a board member from the Rangers t- uh, Rangers board who came forward a couple of weeks ago saying that he can't see it anytime soon. So, I mean, it's it's a very petty situation. It leads to more home support it leads to more I guess a bigger swing in momentum when you have a home fixture I guess mm-hmm. because I mean Celtic are very like Liverpool in a way that they are actually very reliant on the fans and I think you did see that last year in the COVID season where they really struggled without the fans in the stadiums whereas now like the difference the, f- the home fans made last night as cliched as it is to say it, ma- it makes a massive difference to the team
1: it works both ways if you're looking at the two clubs' positions in this. So on the one hand, you know you're going to have a couple of fixtures against your rivals each season whereby it's going to be 100% home support if it continues as it is right now. On the other hand, you've got the chance to dilute that advantage for the other team if you've got a couple of thousand of your fans going along and maybe trying to sing twice as loudly as they do when you go to the away fixture. So... I don't know. Maybe, maybe they'll see This is that the positions can't be changed. But as a neutral, I would have enjoyed it a bit again if Sky had been cutting to the away end and you had seen some Rangers fans who may well have even been walking out of the ground after about 45 minutes last night.
0: Yeah, you do miss that. You do miss that. We will we'll move on to more news of the week. And now, a time of recording, he's in talks. So by the time this goes out in the radio on Friday, it may well have been confirmed or quashed, but Roy Keane is coming back to Sunderland. Jermaine Defoe returned to the club. Um, I know he hinted on uh, that move on Talksport a couple of weeks ago, but he's back at the club, and now they want to bring Roy Keane back as the manager. I, I don't know how to feel about this. I really don't. I know Jer on O2BAM earlier was saying that Roy Keane should stick to punditry because he's really good at it, mm-hmm. but a part of me thinks maybe Roy Keane might have a little bit of magic left in him.
1: I think this is an itch that Roy Keane has been so keen to scratch for so long. You think about pretty much every interview that Roy Keane has done and I'm thinking even back to 3 years ago when we we're in the Borgosh Energy uh, Theatre And we're sitting listening to Roy Keane and Nathan asked him about whether he was interested in getting back into management because it it wasn't that long. Like we're only a few months removed at the time from when he'd left the Republic of Ireland set up where he'd been assistant manager with Martin O'Neill. There had been a short stint with Nottingham Forest as assistant manager. And it seemed that O'Neill and Keane at that point were a tandem act and that Roy Keane was possibly going to work alongside Martin O'Neill as long as O'Neill was getting jobs. But Roy Keane was always insistent that he wanted to go back into management at some point. That doing a few punditry gigs, at the time he was fairly new to Sky when that conversation was happening, but he'd been doing ITV for a while. He obviously enjoys the punditry. I think he's got terrific comic timing, which adds massively to his punditry. Um, Roy Keane knows how to work a crowd. You go to watch him in a live event, he knows exactly the right way to tell the jokes, to tell the stories, to tell the anecdotes. He knows when to ramp up his personality a little bit within that too. And because of that, he has made for fantastic TV over the last couple of years. There's no way I would want to see Roy Keane stick with Punditry just because it would be entertaining for us. I think if Roy Keane wants to get back into management, this is the right decision. Because Sunderland are one of the few clubs, and Craig Hope from the Daily Mail, who broke the story about the initial talks earlier this week between Sunderland and Keane, made a very good point, which is that if Roy Keane was going to walk back to any of his former employers, Sunderland is the one place to go. They're in a decent position currently in League One, where promotion is still very possible in this last third of the season. If Sunderland have got even a middling finish, they're probably going to be in at least the playoffs, and maybe they could still push for automatic promotion. It's a club who we know are well-financed since their takeover. They've also got a huge support, huge stadium All that potential which is there, at the very least, they should be at the top of the championship, not playing in League One. And we kind of would expect that Sunderland even would be pushing to get into the Premier League over the course of the next three or four years. Roy King goes back there to a place where he was loved. He took them over in a perilous enough situation with the way the club had gone when when he came in in the championship. Okay, he was back to the hilt, but he got them out of the championship and into the Premier League. He was very well respected and it looked like his career trajectory was going just in one way at the first spell with Sunderland. I think Ipswich maybe takes a little bit of gloss off what Roy Keane had been doing previously. I think that wasn't a particularly happy relationship for either side. But if Roy Keane feels that he can get back into management and can still contribute as a manager, the only concern you would have, and I don't know how you feel about this, is that he has been out of management as an actual coach slash head manager for quite some time now. The fact that yeah. most of his recent gigs have been assistant managers, whether that was with Paul Lambert or with Martin O'Neill more recently. Effectively, it's been a decade or so since he's actually been a full-time manager. Is that too long out of the game? Like, Are we maybe being a bit too nostalgic about Roy Keane's first spell as management that we're allowing to, that period to go by? If this was someone else, another, say, veteran manager, and they were 10 years out of the game, and Sunderland were going to get them, would we be as warm about the idea of them becoming manager as Roy Keane?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, the common idea that's thrown around Roy Keane is that he has no tactical knowledge and he's very much a you know, personality, work rate, blah, blah, blah type of manager, which I have never really bought into because I just don't think you get to the level that Roy Keane played at without knowing anything about tactics and have played... For the top club in Manchester in, in England for over a decade under the best manager of all time, and not pick up a few things, I I just I refuse to believe that. Plus, there are also player reports from teams that he has played for that completely discount the idea or notion that he is just a uh, armor on the shoulder or a, an angry manager who does all the talking rather than any of the coaching. the The question is, can he? bring this to a modern club with modern players and modern personalities. I think that's his biggest challenge. But I guess the, the the thing that I probably believe is that he's managing a league. He'll be taking over a league one club. It's very different to managing a Premier League club in terms of the the wages and what these players are trying to do. And I don't think you need to be Pep Guardiola to get out of league one. I think you need a lot of strong characters. I think you need a, a lot of strong personalities. And if that is Roy Keane's strength, then I think he could be a very good appointment for Sunderland if that gets him out of League One and into the Championship.
1: Yeah, look, I don't, first of all, I don't believe for a moment that he's tactically naive. <coughs> I think on the TV, he is very good at, I think, analysing in a way that people enjoy it as opposed to a massive yeah. tactical breakdown.
0: Well, see, that's the thing. I think is the biggest thing that Sky. Fail to do with Roy Keane is get him on Monday Night Football. Mm. If they yeah. had a... We really would have got an insight then. But I I, I think he just doesn't like talking talking about tactics. I, I would say he has a real knowledge of it, but he just doesn't think that's what people want.
1: I also, as well, if Roy Keane goes to a club, I don't believe for a moment that he wouldn't bring in coaches who would be able to make up for any black spots that he might have in his own talent pool, say. Like, if Roy Keane believes that he has very specific set of skills... If Roy Keane is the driven, determined guy who he comes across as, I'm sure he would go and find people who could fill in the gaps within his coaching team. And also, it's very mixed reports when you talk to players who were involved in the Republic of Ireland squad with Roy Keane. I know talking to some players who uh, played under him when Martin O'Neill was the manager, they said it was nowhere like what they expected. That they thought they were going to come in, it would be hellfire and brimstone and this guy would be shouting at them. They said that Roy Keane was actually a very likable guy as a system manager. He was somebody who came in, uh, was determined to try and make the Republic of Ireland as good as he possibly could. But generally, he was quite lighthearted and friendly around squads. And they had fairly limited time with Roy Keane anyway, because they were only coming in for a few days ahead of a match. And they said, for the best part, the atmosphere was great when they were with the Republic of Ireland squad. Then, of course, you've got the infamous Uh, WhatsApp voice note that comes out and Roy Keane uh, being very unhappy about some players, particularly Harry Arthur and Jonathan Walters, who he felt uh, were skiving off training or were using injuries as an excuse not to train and weren't putting in the full effort for the country when they were coming in international duty. I think, though, that doesn't necessarily tally with what a lot of people would say about their time when they played under Roy Keane. I think there's maybe this false perception about Keane out there at the moment that uh, what was it that people kind of said? It was like, It was almost like Roy Keane shouldn't manage down the leagues because Roy Keane has such high expectations of the players around him. He's just not able to deal with players who aren't of that standard. I actually don't believe that for a moment.
0: No, no, I I, I don't buy into that. Now, there are managers who have been reported to really struggle with the fact that their players can't do what they were able to do. I know, um, I can't remember what player it was specifically did a, a long interview. Um, it's a former Man City player. And He spoke about how Roberto Mancini made the players feel inadequate in, in training, and it actually really hurt some of the, some of the players' egos because Roberto Mancini, this old guy manager, was better than some of the players still, even though he was about thirty years the elder. Um, but I don't I don't think I don't see that as an issue with Roy Keane. I think he understands that these players aren't at the level that he was at, and I think the biggest issue, the single biggest issue for me, is something that we've seen across Roy Keane's career. And that is his obsession with standards of the actual club rather mm-hmm. than the players. So I, the first thing that he did, or one of the first things that he did at Sunderland was change the sponsor. He, got the, he made sure that the board changed the sponsor because he didn't think that a club the size of Sunderland should be sponsored by, I, I can't remember who exactly it was, but let's say it was someone like, um, you know, it wasn't Adidas, for example, and they changed to Adidas because he he believed that you know they how could they possibly take pride in themselves by wearing a cheap brand, and and little small things like that. And when he went when he went to Celtic, he he got really pissed off at John Hartson because he was drinking a Coke and a, a bag of, eating a bag of crisps after a game. He was just like, "This is unbelievable! How these guys are just so unprofessional compared to everyone else." I think that's those small things are things that Roy Keane struggles with rather than yeah. I, the I look ability I think- of a player.
1: With Roy Keane as well, I'm sure when he went to Celtic and saw that happening with John Hartson, a lot of that played into the way that Roy Keane was taking much better care of himself later on in his career. Like if you read his autobiographies or if you hear Keane talk about his career, he basically decided post the cruciate ligament injury when it came almost to the turn of the century when he said, right, I've got a few seasons left to me now he started to take much better care of himself. He changed his diet around quite a bit. Uh, He got his body fat down. I think he was saying to something pretty crazy. He was down to like 7 or 8% body fat at the time. And then he was also doing things like yoga and stretching, which he hadn't been doing before because he wanted to elongate his career as long as he possibly could. You can imagine Roy Keane, who's doing all this and being obsessive and changing his behavior where he used to go out in Manchester with the older players when he first got to Manchester United and then sees a player who should be one of Celtic's best not living up to the same standards as he has as he tries to just milk those last few bits out of his career. I think that's that's going to be the difference, with I when you, know, when you talk about managers who maybe get frustrated if the players around him can't do what they could have done previously, it always reminds me of Zlatan Ibrahimovic's book, if you get a chance to read it, where he talks about the difference between Pep Guardiola and Jose Mourinho. Now, he obviously fell out with Pep Guardiola towards the end of his time being managed by him. But one of the compliments he had about Guardiola was that Guardiola could go onto the pitch and do pretty much anything that any of the players could do. He could trap a ball and show you exactly where to pass it or how to do it. Jose Mourinho was unable to do that, but he said that Jose Mourinho had very different skills to Pep Guardiola. So while he wasn't able to do it himself on the training pitch... Mourinho was a fantastic motivator and was someone who could get the most out of the players around him. This, Really, when you think about it, that was probably Mourinho's pomp around the time that he was inter-manager. And he was saying that he respected both for different reasons. He respected the fact that Pep Guardiola could be this great technical coach, but on the other hand, Mourinho had all of these skills that Pep Guardiola didn't have or that Mourinho could never have what Pep had, but it didn't make any of them equally less valid as a good manager. And... I think, look, if Roy Keane comes back in, that will be the whole aim, will be to motivate Sunderland between now and the end of the season to go on a consistent run to try and get themselves promoted up to the championship. And look, Keane has been waiting so long to get back in. How many times has he mentioned that he was applying for jobs or he was in the conversation for jobs or he was hoping to get a call about a certain position and those calls just weren't happening. And he was almost feeling a frustration about the fact that he had fallen totally out of favour, that Chairman weren't even Mm. ringing him to have a conversation. So... I'm sure Roy Keane will have quite extensive talks I would think with Sunderland I'm sure he won't jump into this unless he's been 100% confirmed uh, before this goes out on News Talk on Friday evening but I don't think Keane will just go yeah I'll take this because it's the first job that's come along I think exactly like you said he'll make sure that the conditions are correct for Sunderland to be successful for the end of this season and then we'll see if Roy Keane is still at the club beyond the summer that probably will be hugely determined on whether they're preparing for a season in the Championship or They've not got out of League One once again.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting regardless of what happens. If he gets a job... It's such it a pity the be... cameras
1: aren't there though, Inde. like, It's such a yeah. pity this isn't uh, Sunderland Until I Die season three. Could you imagine the spoiler in the middle of the season where it's like Roy Keane rocks up in early February to become the manager <laughs> and it becomes absolute must-watch uh, Netflix streaming for the last three or four episodes of that series. So look, it's been miserable and I have to admit Sunderland Till I Die made me... I feel so much sympathy for Sunderland fans. And the last time I was over in the Northeast, it was one of the days where Sunderland lost the playoff semi final. I was covering the Heineken Champions Cup final for a news talk on the day, and Sunderland were involved in the playoffs and they lost the second leg of their playoff on the same day. And I'm just talking to some Sunderland fans in the city afterwards. Just absolute misery. And some Newcastle fans even around the ground at St. James's Park were actually quite hopeful that Sunderland would get to the playoff final and get promoted because they were excited about the possibility of having some derbies back again. So you can only ever in their case laugh at your rivals so long while they're a couple of divisions below them. Really what they were pining for was to have a Premier League affair between Sunderland and Newcastle again. So hopefully if uh, Roy Keane goes back in Sunderland, one of the great sleeping giants of English football can start moving back up the ladder again.
0: Yeah, I think the Final episode of Sunderland till I die would be the one where Roy Keane walks in because there's absolutely no way he'd be allowing that to to take place with his, him in charge as, as the manager. The my favorite part of that actual documentary is the first game where Celtic absolutely batter Sunderland. I think it ended six mm. 0 on preseason, and it was just the start of the start of the most horrendous season in their history for it's, for a permanent it's when team.
1: reality starts to hit in and in that one because the first couple of episodes are actually really entertaining because you've got this assembly of characters who are coming through with no focus on what's happening on the pitch whatsoever and the whole idea is yeah if we could make the PA just a little bit noisier that might actually inspire the fans a little bit more and uh, you know let's try and do this on social media and next thing you see the couple of preseason games play out and you see how badly Sunderland are getting beaten on the pitch and you start to realise yeah maybe they're not getting back out of League One this season
0: no couple of things just before we finish up well we spoke last week about Frank Lampard uh, potentially taking the Everton job he has been appointed as the Everton manager Ashley Cole has joined his backroom staff uh, now as a coach as well which is an interesting move I always I actually out of all the ex-pundits or ex-footballers who turned to punditry I actually thought Ashley Cole was very underutilized when he was mm-hmm. uh, I think he was on ITV a couple of times I actually really enjoyed uh, listening to him but he's in their backroom team Deli Alley has moved from Spurs to join them, as has Donny van de Beek which, I mean, whatever about Frank Lampard as a coach, those two players immediately make Everton better and in positions they really needed as well
1: Yeah, I saw a potential Everton 11 that I think one of the digital team and OTB had stuck together after the transfer window slammed shut TM during the week and you looked at it and it was like Richarlison Dominic Calvert-Lewin And then you've got Deli Alley in support and, you know, potentially they've reshaped their defence a little bit during this transfer window as well. And mm, you just wonder, will Deli Alli get back to where he was at when Tottenham got to a Champions League final? Will he get back to the way he played under Pochettino or has too long passed now at this stage where it seems that Deli Alli has gone into decline? The good news for Everton is there's no obligation to purchase Deli Alli at the end of the season. If this doesn't work out, he heads back to Spurs. Spurs get a really good fee if he catches fire with Everson over the next few months. £40 million, pounds, which would be an incredible amount of money for Daniel Levy to get back from when it seemed that Deli Alley was pretty much a busted flush and two successive managers now have had little or no interest in playing him in Mourinho and Conte. Then Van de Beek, just, I think he just needs to get football again. Like, I think... It's unfair to judge Donny van de Beek based on the way that he has been underutilised by Manchester United over the last couple of seasons. Now, maybe Donny van de Beek won't get back to where he was at when Ajax got to a Champions League semi-final the last season when Deli Alley was particularly good. The problem with both of them is they've played so little football over the last couple of years. Are they going to be ready to hit the ground running with Everton when they're both going to the club as short-term loans between now and the end of the season? Will it be a month or two months before Everton fans get to see the best football between both of them? But clearly Everton desperately needed recruitment to come in to try and turn around this run of fortune that they've had and on paper their squad looks a lot deeper and a lot better balanced by bringing in a couple of players who can play in attacking midfield positions, albeit Donny van de Beek will in all likelihood play as a box to box or maybe a centre midfielder and you would think that Deli Alli will probably play a little bit further forward if they're both put into the same midfield. I think Everton should be fine. I don't think they will get sucked into a relegation battle at the end of this year, despite the really poor form that they've shown over the past couple of months. We spoke about Frank Lampard coming in. Uh, The good news for Ireland is that Anthony Barry has stayed at at Chelsea, so he's still going to be working with Thomas Tuchel and with the Chelsea players as opposed to making the move to Goodison Park. But I don't know. From Everton's point of view, it has to be a case of getting to the summer and making sure that you're still in the Premier League and get as far away from those relegation spots as you possibly can. I think the jury is still out on Frank Lampard as a manager based on what we've seen so far. I know a lot of people were saying in the comments that at Chelsea, his hands were tied for the first couple of windows because Chelsea had incurred a transfer ban. Yeah, but in the third window, he was backed massively by Roman Abramovich, which changed the expectations entirely. And I actually think it was a little bit of a a crutch for Frank Lampard in his first year or so in the job the people said, ah, he's not been able to recruit and Eden Hazard has left the club and it would have been difficult for any manager to come in. But then the same flaws that were there defensively were still there even when he had you know, a quarter of a billion to spend on top players to come in for the season where it didn't work for him and he got the sack. So the jury, I think, is still out And Frank Lampard as a manager. A bit unlike Roy Keane, it's interesting to see that he's made a step straight back into a Premier League job and didn't have to go and reinvent himself somewhere else or even reinvent himself a bit further down than coming into Everton who are you know, still a massive club. So it'll be intriguing to see how Frank and the boys get on for the rest of the season. Conceding goals has been their big issue during the year and their poor home form as well. But we'll see if maybe the return of their two key attacking players in Richarlison and Damerick canvert to fitness and these new signings will be enough to put enough in the other end so they don't have to be concerned about their defence as much.
0: Yeah. Well, the one thing anyway, well, football is never boring. There's always something oh. to talk about.
1: Well, it's not. I'm, like, this is the thing. So many crazy things happened on transfer day, which I didn't expect. The one that jumped for me was probably Pierre Emmerich or Bobby Yang, Full story will surely come in on this, where we actually get a breakdown hour by hour by what actually happened on Monday for that, because uh, it seemed that Aubameyang travelled to Spain more in hope than expectation. Firstly, that the two clubs were quite a distance away from working out what was going to happen on his wages. There was no guarantee, even if Barcelona came to an agreement with Arsenal, that they were going to have enough space in their wage window with La Liga to be able to actually register him. And then the medical is called for, and then it's cancelled, and then it's on again. And then the medical company don't hear from Barcelona about it being cancelled again when the talks are on. And in the end, if reports are to be believed, Arsenal may well have given him an £8 million sweetener to leave. They're going to save rather than 20 million, about 12 million, for not paying him for the next couple of seasons out to the end of that massive contract, which was so debated when he was the hotshot striker in the Premier League. And people were wondering, Obama Yang into his 30s, is it worth paying him till he's 33 or 34 at an elite rate? And then. Barcelona somehow managed to massage the numbers a bit like they did with Umtiti, where Aubameyang gets paid now till 2025 so that they can spread it to meet financial fair play requirements. He's brought down his wages somewhat to sign for the club, but it's staggered in a way that it's well paid. It sounds so totally counterintuitive, given his age will have gone up in those two years even more, that if you stay for the two seasons where there's a break clause after that too he can earn much more in his last two years So Barcelona, I'm guessing, are thinking they'll be in a better financial situation at that stage. I think it's very unlikely Aubameyang meets the end of his contract, but a more convoluted transfer we have not seen since um, Peter Adam Wenge didn't get his transfer to QPR, but it was yeah, like, well, it was comedy, comedy stuff.
0: That's that's the one that's always brought up by these hashtag football banter pages on on Twitter, you know, the every single deadline day, it's just like, ah, go grab the Peter Adam Wenge picture there and stick it up. And that's what it was like. It was like a top level version of that. And it's just, Barcelona is such a bizarre club to me. They're so bizarrely run. It's unbelievable how it's a, it, it, actually, sorry, I'll rephrase that. It's completely believable how they've ended up in this situation because it's, it's the decision-making in that club's insane. Even with the at, at the helm now, you you, you would have thought there might be a smarter recruitment process and they have some really exciting talent at the club, but then they go and, you know, spend massive wages on Aubameyang and have and get Adama Traore from from Wolves, and it's just it doesn't make sense to me. You're buying it. They essentially now are one component away from having the Middles Middlesbrough 2017 18 force up front. They're yeah, one player away from that.
1: I did like the Broadway be- had the picture up of the two guys in 2018, himself and Adama Adama, Torre even playing together at Middlesbrough. Like how it's got to this point that you go from where Barcelona had uh, Neymar, Suarez, Messi the season before that to now a few years later, ending up with potentially having in some games Bratwaite and Adama Torre playing together up front for them. Uh, Look, I think this window hasn't been a terrible one for them because they had to recruit in the forward line for a combination of factors in that it looks like they are genuinely going to freeze Ousmane Dembele out for the rest of the season. He had gone to Paris, seemingly, for talks with his agent midweek, and then a bit like a Bamiyang, he was photographed coming back into Barcelona Monday when it became clear he wasn't going to get a move to PSG or to a Premier League club, despite the fact that Barcelona tried to hawk him everywhere because they wanted to get his quarter of a million a week wages off the bill uh, to be able to sign players. And then... I would say that their offices, because there was pictures of them getting pizza delivered quite late in the night, was just throwing at the wall and seeing what would stick. Because they didn't intend to sign four players. They've made an absolute mess of this, where now they're not able to register Dani Alves to play in Europe for the rest of the season because they signed too many players. Uh, You can only register three players for the Europa League. And I don't think they intended to bring in more than three. I think they were probably hopeful that Dembele would either leave or sign the contract and that they would sign Ferran Torres and maybe two more to strengthen. They were definitely looking at a left-back and if you were to assess their window, they have now have no cover at left-back for Jordi Alba. He's going to have to play pretty much every minute for the rest of the season unless Sergino Des plays some football over there. They brought in Adama Torre to cover two positions, right wing-back and right wing. If Dembele, if Xavi decides to play him again, will Adama Torre play at all for the rest of the season? And now they've ended up with Ferran Torres who ostensibly it seemed was going to play through the middle now we'll probably play from the left or right hand side because Aubameyang has come in but I don't know where Memphis Depay now fits into the system either it was like once Ansu Fadi got injured they were like we gotta go get a striker and they're so top heavy with the players that they've signed in this window now it's An absolute mess. But then again, that's where they were in a mess coming into this window and good clubs generally don't have to scramble in January. And the message would be that if you're an organised club, you don't have to do what Barcelona were doing on deadline day. As entertaining as it was with Aubameyang. And even the next day and it was pretty entertaining that Barcelona had to scrub a picture from their official website because they messed up a little bit. They had to wait for Arsenal to terminate Aubameyang's contract before they could sign him because of the nature of the beast that you know, they didn't want us to make a payment to Arsenal. Obamiang uh, was training on Tuesday morning when he probably shouldn't have been and they took a picture of I think it was Usman Dembele and who's standing over his shoulder but Aubameyang and some of the Spanish press noticed the picture and Barcelona scrubbed it from their website really quickly. Now Arsenal later that night were to announce that Obamiang was gone but technically Obamiang should not have been training with his new teammates on Tuesday but because he was still an Arsenal player when it happened.
0: Yeah, Duncan Alexander had this written much more uh, clear than I'm going to say it, but the last couple of years of Barcelona have been selling Neymar for a record fee, paying for Usman, is paying basically the same fee for Usman Dembele and for Coutinho. They've now sold Coutinho to Aston Villa on loan, who's probably going to join Aston Villa, let's face it, on a full-time basis after this loan spell. Now they're trying to get rid of Usman Dembele for free, to the club that bought Neymar in the first place, and have also now taken Lionel Messi for free, because Barcelona couldn't afford to pay for Messi's wages on top of Usman Dembele's wages.
1: It's genius by PSG, isn't it? They shorted the transfer markers. They Ugh. got Neymar. No, okay, Neymar. There'll definitely be debates and arguments around Neymar's time in PSG when his career finishes. And I think we said last week, it feels like Neymar has almost lost his motivation to be a top footballer. Despite the irony of him saying that he wanted to step out of Messi's shadow and become the best in the world when he went to Paris. He's missed 130 odd games for Paris Saint-Germain since then. But the short of it is that the transfer market was screwed entirely for the top clubs in Europe by the Neymar fee. I don't think we ever thought the transfers would go north of 200 million. That was always one of those ones where 100 million seemed crazy. And when it started to get to 100 million, you thought this is just for a very special, very select group. We'll never get to 200 million. Then Barcelona couldn't wait to spend that money when it came in from Neymar. They deserve what happens to them now with Dembele because of the way that Dembele treated Bruce Dortmund when he left to go to Barcelona for the best part of 100 million euro at the time. They then went and spent over £100 on Philippe Coutinho, which, as you say, wiped out entirely the money that they got for the Neymar deal, which should, in theory, have actually allowed them to reinvigorate their squad, which was ageing at the time. But instead, they decided to go for two flavour-of-the-month players and totally overpay for them. And then PSG, the upshot of it is, Philippe Coutinho was paid by Barcelona to play in the Champions League semi-final and score twice against them for Bayern Munich. (laughs) He's now being paid somewhat by Barcelona for the next year to play for Aston Villa. And similarly, it looks like Usman Dembele and Neil Messi will join Neymar at PSG, both for free, on the back of PSG shorting the market by signing Neymar. If you ever wanted to go in and just be a destabilizing influence within European football, PSG have succeeded admirably with the Neymar deal when you look at the upshot of it four and a half years on.
0: Yeah, like I said, well, football is never boring.
1: It's surely not. Thanks for that. Cheers, Anda.
0: All right, so that is us done on Team 33 this evening. Thanks to you for listening as ever, especially since you've got a nasally host this evening. I was struck down by a small cold during the week, so as you can probably hear in my voice, I'm not back to full strength just yet, but appreciate everyone who has tuned in this evening and across the podcast as well. If you want to get the podcast, it is in the OTB Podcast Network, which you can get in the OTB Sports app, or you can get it on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, just search Team33 and it will be there. We will be back in this slot next week with a League of Ireland bumper preview because we're nearing closer to the League of Ireland season. So that will be coming up next Friday evening. Until then, Ihoa Slang Take away, Johan.